Well, who doesn't like a great underdog story? You know what I'm saying? Ever since I was a little kid, I've always been a fan of, uh, of underdog stories. Uh, those, those great heroes who come back and overcome tremendous odds and adversity. In fact, some of my favorite stories and, and movies growing up were, were these great underdog tales, right? Like, how many of you remember Rocky Balboa, for example, right? I mean, what a classic underdog story. In fact, the small print at the top of the movie poster, his whole life was a million to one shot. I mean, talk about an underdog, right? Or how about uh, Gene Hackman and Hoosiers? Remember that great movie, right? Hickory High School in Indiana, probably the, the greatest high school championship in the history of Indiana State. And then uh, who could forget the Karate Kid? I mean, are you kidding me? Talk about an underdog, right? The Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi. But these are great stories of overcoming adversity, overcoming tremendous obstacles. And, and friends, what's the common denominator with every underdog story. The common denominator is that they all boil down to a crucial moment when the hero stops questioning their potential and realizes their inherent ability and power to overcome the challenge that's in front of them. Whether it was Rocky racing up the stairs of the Philadelphia Library or the, the Hickory High basketball team winning the crucial game after their coach had been ejected or, or the karate kid finally landing the crane kick on the beach, right? All of these great stories boil down to this crucial moment when the underdog realizes the power, the ability that they have. And, you know, as I think about these great underdog stories, I can't help but wonder if the early followers of Jesus didn't also at times question their potential in light of the massive challenge that laid in front of them. Remember, Jesus had told his followers to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Now, friends, that alone is an incredible challenge, right? I mean, go into all the world? Are you kidding? But then when you pair that call with, with the reality of the, the hostile Jewish culture that they were in and, and the oppression of the Roman Empire that surrounded them, friends, these early followers of Jesus clearly fit the mold of underdogs. Except for one important fact. Jesus had promised them that help was coming. They wouldn't be left alone to face the challenges in front of them. And they wouldn't take on the mission that God had given them without his supernatural empowerment. And last week we saw how God fulfilled his promise to the church. Last week we looked at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon God's people and, and a great rushing wind entered the room and tongues of fire fell on them, showing them that they now had God's presence and power at work within them. And they began to speak boldly in tongues of different languages, professing, proclaiming the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They came to see that they had God's empowerment. And yet, even with that miraculous event, friends, these early followers of Jesus still hadn't really faced any real opposition at this point. They still hadn't come against any genuine challenges in the calling that they had been given. They hadn't had their moment yet, their moment when they would come to realize and believe that with God's promise and with his empowerment, they could truly transform the world. 
Well, as we're going to see this morning, that moment would come in the passage that we're going to read today. God is going to reveal to his church that the gospel revolution he has called them to is truly an unstoppable force. God would not let anything stand in the way of the advancement of his message. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. And so God was going to highlight in a powerful way for his people today the reality that they were a church on the move. They were an unstoppable force because they had God's promise and power behind them. This morning we're going to read one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. And this is an incredible passage. It's a long passage, all right? Now, this is the longest passage we're going to look at in our series in Acts. And, and I debated, what do I do with this? Do I break it up? But here's the deal. It's all one story. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's an extended story, and we really need to get the feel of what's going on here. So I want to read this story for us, okay? And, and, and man, it's just going to blow you away because it's an incredible story. And then I want to come back after reading the story and highlight three ways that we see God's church on the move through this miraculous event that takes place here in Acts chapters 3 and 4 this morning. So follow along if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, you can see it on the screen behind me. I might hang out in my water here just to keep me going. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of J Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his, name, by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. Excuse me. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This, Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them back and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man in whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had heard and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What an awesome story. I mean, are you kidding me? What an awesome story. And here in this story this morning, we see very clearly that the gospel revolution was on the move. It was an unstoppable force. With God's promise and power, the early church came to see that there would be nothing that could stand against God's work. Here in our passage, I want to highlight three points. Three points of how we see the gospel revolution on the move in this incredible passage. And the first of these here is we see this miracle pointing to the Messiah. A miracle pointing to the Messiah. You know, friends, one of the consistent themes that you'll find throughout the book of Acts is God empowering his church to do miraculous works for the sake of his glory. I mean, everywhere you see miracles being performed in Acts, God's people always give the glory to Jesus Christ. And we see that here in the story that Luke records for us in chapter 3. Peter and John command this lame beggar to stand up and walk. And by God's power, this lame man of over 40 years is miraculously healed. He goes leaping through the temple courts, praising God, giving glory to God. Now, friends, as you would expect, it doesn't take long for a crowd to form. A huge crowd of people comes around seeing this miracle. They, they wanted to see the wonder that had taken place. They, they wanted to see the, the healers who had done this miracle. Perhaps some of them wanted to be healed themselves. And oh, how tempting it must have been for Peter and John to bask in the glory and the acclaim of the crowd. Hey, John, quick, get the selfie stick. we got to get this on video. Put this up on YouTube. Look at this, John, we're rock stars. But that wasn't their reaction, was it? What is Peter's reaction? Peter's reaction to the wonder and the amazement of the crowd is to quickly point them to Jesus. See, for the early church, the miracles that were performed were all done for the glory of Jesus. And Peter points them to Jesus to honor and glorify him. Friends, what a model for us today. 
You know, when you think about your own life and the, and the ways that God is using you to serve and, and bless others, friends, are we quick to point people to Jesus when God's at work through our lives? When God honors us by using us for his glory, are we quick to deflect the praise off of ourselves and, and onto Jesus Christ? I've had some terrific influences and mentors in my life in ministry. And as I was thinking about them this past week, one of the common denominators in all of them is they were all godly men and women who were quick to deflect praise off of themselves and direct it to Jesus Christ. I was thinking just this week, and I don't want to embarrass them, but even Pastor Rick. I mean, Pastor Rick has no one else in my life has had a bigger influence on my pastoral ministry than Pastor Rick. And as I was thinking about Rick this past week, if you don't know Rick, he's our founding pastor, our former senior pastor of 33 years here. And as I was thinking about, when I think of Rick, when I think of the words that he used to say, what, what phrases most come to mind for me? Friends, I, I can hear it in my own head this morning. Rick saying things like, God has been so good. This is his church. What an honor to serve the Lord. Friends, phrases like that typify a person who's more concerned about Jesus getting the glory than we getting the glory. And I'll tell you something, friends. If you want to find a spirit-empowered ministry anywhere in this world, just look for someone giving all the praise and glory to Jesus. That's a ministry that has God's blessing all over it. And we see that here in the example of the apostles. So Peter goes on and he preaches this amazing sermon. And he points the crowd to Jesus. And Peter informs the gathered masses that they needed healing just as much as this formerly lame man did. But not physical healing, spiritual healing. They needed spiritual healing. And so Peter preaches to the crowd the need for repentance and the promise of new life in Jesus' name. You see, friends, that's always God's priority. Even in the midst of these miraculous signs and wonders that we see in the book of Acts, God's priority always, always is to give honor and glory to his name. And he does that by calling people to repentance, to, to call people to, to leave a life of rebellion, a life of selfishness, pursuing selfish interests, and instead turning to a life of restoration, walking in liberty and forgiveness of sin and freedom and new life in Christ. That's always God's priority. But you know something, as I think about it, we're, we're a lot like the crowd at the temple that day, aren't we? So many of us, you know, when we think about God's work, we, we get so caught up in our own temporal needs and desires. And, and we want to see miracles. We, we want God to, to meet our needs and we want him to do it now. But you see, friends, God's greatest concern is always for our eternal well-being. Now, does God still perform miracles today? Absolutely he does. But I'll tell you something, the greatest miracle of all is what he does in transforming our hearts and molding our character in preparation for eternity. And friends, that miracle only happens when we repent, when we turn from our sins and pursue new life in Jesus Christ. And I need to ask you this morning, 
Have you experienced that miracle in your own life? Have you experienced the times of refreshing that Peter spoke of in his sermon here? Those times of refreshing that come when when you turn to Christ and you repent of your sins and you experience the reality of your guilt and your shame all being washed away, cleansed and forgiven. You experience the time of refreshing when the Spirit comes and indwells you with God's presence. And you know you've been changed forever. Friends, if you haven't experienced that reality, you can. You can by doing just what Peter proclaimed 2,000 years ago. Repenting of your sins. Seeking Jesus' forgiveness. Turning to Christ. Asking Him to be the Lord of your life. Jesus, come and sit on the throne of my heart. And friends, you can know with certainty, even here this morning, that you are a new creation because of what Jesus has done for us. We see in our passage this morning that Luke tells us over 2,000 people that day put their faith in Jesus as a result of Peter's sermon. What an incredible miracle. That's a greater miracle than the lame man leaping and dancing through the temple. Luke says the number of believers now came to about 5,000. Every week here, friends, we're seeing this exponential growth of the church. The gospel revolution was on the move. It couldn't be stopped. And you know something? It didn't take long for the Jewish authorities to discover the commotion that had been caused that day. As the crowd gathers and they hear the reports of the miracle and they, they discover 2,000 people in their midst praising Jesus, the guy that they had just crucified a few weeks earlier. And so the Jewish authorities can't let this go. And this leads me to point number two this morning. We see a confrontation leading to the cross. A confrontation leading to the cross. And here again, once again, empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, Peter points the Jewish religious authorities to Jesus. And the heart of Peter's message is found in chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. I want to read this for us again because this is such a central passage giving testament to the, to the whole meaning of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 4, starting at verse 8. They, they call Peter and John before the religious ruling authorities in sort of an inquisition, a, a, a trial, if you will. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. What a sermon. That'll preach, friends. Now, as you can imagine, Peter's proclamation here didn't go over all too well with the guys who had just crucified Jesus a few weeks earlier. See, Jesus was a challenge to their authority. That's why they killed him. And now here's his apostles standing up in the very same place Jesus stood up, also challenging their authority. And friends, isn't that always the issue when it comes to Jesus? 
Who has the authority? Who's running the show? Who's sitting on the throne? Is it going to be my way or Jesus' way? See, that's always the question with Jesus. Who has the authority? And I'll tell you something, friends. The truth that Peter declares here in verse 12, that there is salvation found in no other name, given under heaven but the name of Jesus. Friends, this truth is still being met with scorn and opposition today. See, our world doesn't want to hear the exclusive claims of Jesus. An unbelieving world doesn't want to hear that that they're sinners in need of a Savior. They don't want to hear that there's only one path to salvation. But it's the truth. And they need to hear this truth. But I'll warn you here this morning, friends, if you dare to proclaim that people need Jesus and that salvation is only found in Jesus' name, I'm telling you, you better be prepared to face some opposition. I remember about five years ago, I had a friend who called me up. I was sitting here in my office at church, and I had a buddy call me up. He said, Jason, have you seen this website today, cruel.com? I'm like, "Uh, cruel.com? No, sorry, it's not one of my regular bookmarks. I haven't been there today. So he goes, you got to go look up this website, cruel.com. And so, sure enough, I go to this website, cruel.com, and apparently this guy had made it his mission to scour the Internet looking for examples of bigotry and hatred and intolerance. And the first article on the, on the website's homepage that morning was about a Hitler youth rap group, a neo-Nazi rap group. The, the second article down was an article about a child pedophile ring in Europe. And then the third article down had a headline that read, Don't invite the Carlsons to your next interfaith gathering. I said, what in the world is this? So I clicked on the article, and this guy had apparently found an article that I had written like five years earlier for a Christian worldview website about uh, the religion of Islam. And in my article, he quotes me, he says, Islam is a veil of deception that Satan has used to blind the eyes of millions of people. And then he quotes me again later. He says, we must be in prayer for our Muslim friends and neighbors because they have been deceived by a false god and a false prophet and a false religion. And that's what he quoted as an example of my bigotry and intolerance. How dare I would proclaim that this religion was false and that these Muslim people needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And it was that proclamation that earned me a place on a website along with neo-Nazi rap groups and child pedophile rings. But friends, that's how the world looks at the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. It's how the world has looked at the claims of Jesus Christ for over 2,000 years. And I just want to encourage you here this morning, friends. Don't be discouraged when the world applies labels to your faith like intolerant or exclusive or judgmental. Being any of these things isn't necessarily bad. The reality is, the question is, what is true? What is true? I think I've shared this story with you before, but a few years ago, I was at a pastor's network meeting down in the Twin Cities, and 
Later in the afternoon, I was driving home, 35W, coming up around the University of Minnesota. And I was making that turn where you start heading east up towards 36 in Roseville. And all of a sudden, as I'm driving along the freeway, I see all the lights in front of me, all the cars in front of me, their, their, their brake lights start going red, you know, one after another. And pretty soon, I'm stuck in this traffic jam. I mean, we're not even moving. 35W was a parking lot. Well, I was listening to the radio, and, and the radio announcer, after one of the songs ended, came on and said, hey, we've got uh, our helicopter eye in the sky up above Minneapolis right now, and this helicopter traffic reporter came on the radio, and she said that there was an accident off of County Road E2, and 35W was backed up all the way down to Minneapolis, and I'm sitting there telling me about it, right? I'm in the middle of this traffic jam. But then the helicopter traffic reporter said, look it, if you haven't yet gotten that far, if you can head east on Highway 36, get off on Snelling Avenue, head north on Snelling, you'll be able to bypass the accident and make it home safely and on time. Now friends, as I was sitting in my car in the middle of that traffic jam that morning, I had a couple choices I could make, right? The first choice I could have said was, ah, who does she think she is? I mean, how arrogant, how narrow-minded, how judgmental of her to tell me the way to go to get home safely and on time. Now, now I could have done that, right? But then I thought to myself, wait a minute. She's a mile up in the sky. She sees things that I can't see from my vantage point. She knows the, the obstacle up ahead, and she's telling me an alternative path that will lead me safely home and on time. Friends, I would be absolutely foolish to ignore the guidance of the helicopter traffic reporter. And in the same way, friends, God, our Heavenly Father, is our Heavenly Traffic Reporter. And the Lord in heaven looks down upon a world that He has created, and He sees our dilemma. He knows the problem, that we are lost in spiritual darkness. We're trapped in our sin. And God knows about all the different religious options out there. But he's told us very clearly from his heavenly vantage point, there's only one path that leads to life. There's only one way that will get you safely home. And that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, just like you would be naive to ignore the guidance of the helicopter traffic reporter. You would be equally foolish to ignore the guidance of our heavenly traffic reporter who's told us the way that leads to life and life to the full. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. Peter proclaimed Jesus as the only hope of the world. Friends, that message will come off as exclusive and intolerant and judgmental to the unsaved person, which means all the more we need to convey that message with love and grace and sensitivity. But the fact remains, it's true nonetheless. People need Jesus. Thirdly, in our passage this morning, we see a demand giving rise to determination. Now, as we read in our passage this morning, the Jewish authorities, they didn't like what Peter and John were saying. But they couldn't really do anything about it, right? I mean, everybody had seen the miracle that had taken place. 
So at the end of the day, all they can really do is order the apostles to stop preaching about Jesus. All right, just, just stop preaching in Jesus' name. Everything will be good. <clears throat> but I want you to notice how Peter and John respond in verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Friends, Peter and John here were speaking a principle that has guided Christian ethics for over 2,000 years. And what is that principle? That principle is simply this. When a command from the government violates a command from God, we choose God every time. Let me say that again. When a command from the government or our civil authorities violates a command from God, we go with God every time. And friends, there are literally hundreds of examples over the last 2,000 years of God's people having to stand against government authorities in the face of opposition. I think of stories like Casper Tenboom, the father of Corey Tenboom. You may remember the famous book, The Hiding Place. Casper Tenboom in 1944, he and his family had been harboring Jews in the Netherlands during World War II as the Nazis were rounding up Jewish people and sending them off to concentration camps. Casper Tenboom, as a follower of Jesus, said, I can't stand for this. And so, in the face of op- opposing the government's laws and orders, he built a hiding place in his home to shelter the Jews. Well, in 1944, the Nazis raided his house, and they discovered the, the hidden room, and they arrested Casper Tenboom and his family. And the Nazi Gestapo chief took Casper Tenboom, who at this point was an elderly old man. He took him back to the, to the prison and interrogated him, and he said to this old man, he says, Hey, old man, I want to let you go. He had sympathy on this man. I want to let you go, but here's, what's, here, here's what you need to do. Just go home, obey the laws, follow the orders, just do what we tell you to do, and we'll let you go. And Casper Tenboom replied, If you let me go home today, tomorrow I will open the door to my home to any man in need. And the Gestapo chief was enraged and he threw Casper Tenboom in prison. And he would die in a Nazi prison hospital 10 days later. But he would not go against his convictions that all people are loved and valuable in the eyes of God. Friends, there are literally countless other examples we could share this morning. But again, the principle here is simply this. If our earthly governments implement laws that lead us to violate the will and norms of God, we must choose God every time. Even if it means we might count the cost and face persecution for our defiance. See, friends, remember, as followers of Jesus Christ, we live for the applause of heaven, not the acclaim of man. Now, at this point, the Jewish authorities are just baffled. They don't know what to do with these guys. And so ultimately, all they really can do is threaten them again. And then they let them go. They let them go. 
And in verse 23 of chapter 4, Peter and John go back to the early church and, and we find here in this verse that the early church finally has their moment. After hearing all that had happened to Peter and John and the ultimate result of their confrontation with the authorities, the early church genuinely comes to believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel revolution that they had been called to is truly an unstoppable force. And what do they do next, friends? I love this. They lift their voices and praise to God, praying a prayer that King David first recorded in Psalm chapter 2. One of my other favorite passages in the whole Bible, Psalm chapter 2. Look at this. Look at this passage. This is awesome. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why do the nations rage? The Lord in heaven laughs. Friends, over the past 2,000 years, nations and dictators and revolutions have tried to put an end to the church. But the gospel revolution keeps marching on. In the 1950s and 60s, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the, the communist government there killed millions of Christians. It was estimated that at the end of the 1960s, there were less than a few thousand Christians left in all of China. Chairman Mao Zedong's wife once boasted, Christianity in China has been confined to museums. It is dead and buried. You want to know something, friends? Today, there are over 70 million Christians in China. It is literally one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world. Or we could talk about the nation of Cambodia and the communist Khmer Rouge of the 1970s. Many of you will remember Pol Pot and the killing fields. Over a quarter of the population of Cambodia was killed. Nearly two million people. Less than a few hundred Christians were left in that country in 1979. And now today... The church in Cambodia is thriving. There are over half a million Christians that we know of, hundreds of growing gospel-centered churches, seminaries training pastors, sending them out as missionaries throughout Southeast Asia. God's church is on the move. We could talk about what took place in Syria over the last five years. Since 2015, the Islamic State tried to wipe out Christianity. Over 500,000 people were killed in Syria. For example, in one area of Syria, the Kabr River Valley, there were once 20,000 Christians. Today, there are only 800 left. And yet, while the Islamic State has been completely wiped off the map in the last two, two years, do you know this morning, those 800 Christians are gathering and the charred remains of churches ISIS once tried to destroy to praise King Jesus. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The Lord in heaven laughs. And I want you to look at verse 29. 
at the end of our passage this morning, how does the church respond to all of this? They pray an incredible prayer. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God, let us continue to speak your word with all boldness. Continue to empower us to proclaim the hope of the gospel with all boldness. What an incredible prayer. Friends, is that our prayer today? What if we prayed for the same kind of boldness? What might God do in our community? What might God do in our nation if churches around America today prayed that prayer, Lord, let us proclaim your word with all boldness. Friends, the gospel revolution is on the move. Do you want to be a part of it? I know I sure do. Let's make that our prayer this morning. Then we, we might proclaim God's word with all boldness. The church is an unstoppable force with the power of God behind us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Jesus said. Lord, help us to proclaim your word with all boldness. Let's close in prayer. Holy Spirit, this morning I just want to echo the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ 2,000 years ago. We live in a world where there is much opposition to the message of the gospel. And yet, Lord, you love this world so much. And you open your arms wide to any who would come to you in repentance because you are a gracious, loving Savior. We have an incredible message to share with our world today. A message of a God who loves us, who died on a cross to forgive us of our sins, who conquered the grave and rules and reigns over all of our circumstances today. A God who's coming again for his people one day, who will bring times of refreshing and make all things new. What a great message, and our world needs to hear it. So, Lord, we pray this morning that you would inspire us through the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim your truth with all boldness because there are people in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask for your help. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your grace and empowerment. All for your glory and honor, Lord. Praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to remind you, friends, that if any of you would like prayer this morning, some of our elders and Stephen ministers will be here at the front of the platform. I want to leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless you.